Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. This week's guest on In Her Room is Randy Buckley. It is no surprise that Randy Buckley has a connection to Vikings. She is compassionate, fair, and teaches others how to hold their true boundaries in the face of adversity. An author, coach, and all-around badass, Randy reminds us to laugh, cry, and remember to nap when we need it. Randy, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's very great to be on your show. I'm so excited. I have been a huge fan of your work for a really long time, and I just love having the opportunity to connect with you whenever possible. And so getting to sit down is such a joy. And to share your words and your wisdom with this audience is truly a blessing. Oh, thank you, Sarah. I want to talk about all of the many interesting and amazing things that you do, but I want to start off by asking you simply, what is writing to you? Writing is a mountain (laughs) that I never anticipated climbing. And I am finding more and more that uh, I want to climb it. And it's nurturing because I I never saw myself as a writer, uh, but I I find it very, um, it's a cool thing. It's really cool. I, so, so I guess it feels like a mountain, actually. It's something I'm climbing, one that I never expected. But every time I do it, I get to a different place and I can see new things from there. I love that. <laughs> I love that. No, I, I really do. I think that is such a great perspective because you're right. Every time that we sit down with our writing, we end up somewhere different. And many times it's not where we thought we might be going. Sometimes we sit down to write and we have no idea what we're going to talk about. And other times we might sit down with a clear path ahead of us and plow right through. And it may look exactly how we think, but it's important to have that willingness and maybe a sense of adventure to take the risk to be a writer. Absolutely. Yes. It's a, I think a sense of adventure is really good. And I think people talk about taking the risk and um, being brave and being vulnerable. But I think there isn't as much, at least from what I have read, talk about that sense of adventure. It's a lovely way to look at it. I think in addition to being a writer, folks might not know that you're also a coach, but you're a really unique kind of coach, I think. I don't even know that coach is the right word to use to describe the work that you do. You are a risk taker. You talk about hard things. You guide women through sometimes really sticky situations. And I'm really curious how you got to the place where you said yes to doing this kind of work. I was I was looking for a way to do this type of work because it's what I've done all my life. Um, I remember being on the playground and helping kids formulate conversations they were, or talk through conversations they need to have with their parents or um, <laughs> like third or fourth grade, probably even younger, um, helping people try to get, you know, work stuff out. Um, while well, we were playing Dukes of Hazard, <laughs> just I was always kind of in this um, role of supporting people. And then that continued. I 
worked at a summer camp for a long time. Uh, then I started, so I was doing all that with kids, and then I was then doing that with staff for, and been doing that for 25 years now. And it's always been this red thread that has connected all of my work in any job I've had. There's this, or I've made it an aspect of the work I've done, where it's really been about looking at things honestly and um, seeing what's true and really finding what's true for people and then helping you to make peace with it. Um, and that usually includes being able to articulate what's true for you in a way that feels good and then also doing the work so that you can be at peace with it. So when I finally found this thing called coaching, I and by the way, I cannot stand that name. I, Life coach is <laughs> often the title. We found anything better, though, that feels right for me. But um, it was a huge relief. Like, <laughs> just thank you. I can I can actually do this for a living. This is great. And not that I had to find the title, but that gave a context and structure. And that was great. Absolutely. And yeah, I I think that red thread really does come through in the kinds of things that you work with people on. And one of the biggest things that you do is you work on boundaries. Yes. You have an offering called Healthy Boundaries for Kind People. And I must admit that the first time I heard you write about boundaries, I, well, it pissed me off. Really? Yes. Because everything that you said was so clear and so, like, it had this ring of obviousness to me that I was just like, who is this person? How is she getting away with saying all this stuff that's like, duh, but why have I not figured this out? <laughs> and I just remember, like, thinking, whoa. Once I got over being angry, which wasn't really anger, I was like, this woman gets it. Like, this woman gets boundaries in a way that makes boundaries not be this scary, ugly, defensive wall. Right. And really brings them into the world in a way that is full of compassion and empathy for ourselves and everyone around us. And that being said, I'd love it <laughs> if you would... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm still laughing that you're pissed off. Awesome. <laughs> well, I appreciate I, that. <laughs> I would love it if you could maybe say a little bit more about what healthy boundaries are in relation to kindness and empathy and how you approach boundaries. Sure. So uh, exactly what you said, I think generally what when we eventually learn about boundaries, which is suddenly seems like this separate thing from just living. Um, and it's not. I, so I'll, let me take a step back. So I think boundaries can be the container to contain the life that you want to have. And it's less about what you are keeping out. Um, you know, when we, when we think about boundaries, it's kind of this talk to the hand. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I'm going to, you know, some so-and-so is not getting away with that. With that. But we're not looking about what we want to have inside. And so those boundaries give us give us that space in which to be. But also, they really, when we, when we articulate them in a way that feels right and good for us, it's like handing somebody an instruction to get the best version of ourselves. People can't read our minds. So 
what we try to do then is guide them, say, you know, this is <laughs> this is the best way I work. And, and that's not necessarily how you would say it, but it might be if that works for you. But this is what works for me in order for you to get the best version of me. And I also think there is something fundamentally different about boundaries for kind people, because a lot of the traditional advice kind people will either not do because it feels unkind. You don't want to be a jerk. So you're not, you just stay away from that. And then you think boundaries are, you know, if you have them, you've got to be a jerk. Um, the way you've seen them done have been really uh, not done elegantly, or you try to do it and it's so not you that it completely backfires and it feels awful. Like you wish you hadn't done anything at all. Like you dug a hole, dug yourself. So when we learn that boundaries are an extension of what we value and a way of taking the things we value and really turning them into verbs, they become an infrastructure. Really, they already are the infrastructure for our whole life, but particularly to extend your kindness to the world, if that is a, something that you are a kind person or something you value that then has this infrastructure to be built up and go out because people are getting the best version of you. They know what to expect. They are showing up in a different way too. So it's a, it's a whole, it's a whole bunch of things, but ultimately um, I think it's about containing what you want your life to be like, mm. what you want to have in your life. I love that. I, I think that's so important and for me I think about this a lot and I think about boundaries a lot when it comes to my own writing because I write about my life I write creative nonfiction and I write personal narrative and I I write about the things that I experience and the and the life that I have lived and a lot of times what comes up for me is as I'm writing something about an experience I've had the first draft is always a chance for me to really reflect and process what happened. And often that includes a sense of, wow, I really had poor boundaries or wow, I really let that person do or say something that didn't feel good or didn't feel right. Or how could I have approached the situation in a different way? And I think when it comes to writing, it can be a really good way to reflect on when we are showing up as our best selves and when we can look at an experience and say, you know, I didn't really do that the way I wanted. Right. It's a fit. That's a fantastic reflective tool um, to really, that, I mean, that is the ultimate mirror in holding up and being willing to look at what you have written and see, okay, what is true <laughs> and here and what needs to be done differently. It's a beautiful mirror. It is. And I, and then to be able to translate that learning mm -hmm. and take the writing one step further and say, wow, you know, I had this experience and this is what I learned from it. This might help another person yes. to reflect on their own experience. I think that's really one of the ultimate gifts when it comes to bringing together things like working on boundaries and looking at sticky situations in our own writing. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> You're very good, Sarah. <laughs> One of the other things that you do in your work 
You mentioned working at a summer camp, which is actually the Concordia Language Villages, and you have worked in the Norwegian camp for a very long time, and you also do work with women around Vikings. Right. And Viking women and that sense. And I I just, I have been so excited to have you on the show because I, I would love to hear you talk about how that came to be a thing. Thing, how that how working with the idea and the strength of Viking women came into your work and what it really means for you. Okay, so the, the, it's probably a layered answer. I have been working um, at the Norwegian language village for I think this was my 26th year and I attended for about eight years before that. So I have known a lot of Scandinavians and all of the um, Nordic women, in particular in my case, um, Norwegian women I have known have been awesome. <laughs> just really fantastic human beings. Um, just really enjoying some of my, you know, my best friends are there. It, it's just, there's just something there. It's like they're carrying a little part of the land they're from with them. It's just there, this element. And through the work there, I have, um, been a part of one of the groups um, that we work with kids at the camp um, learning Viking culture and well beyond just the stereotypical aspect of really learning about their contributions and some a little you know a little bit about mythology and how all this works and lots of cool activities with them so this has always been a it's been a life ever since I can remember and um spent a lot of time in Norway looking at that and just enjoying that. And there's, it's kind of this archetype, this Viking woman that we have that, you know, stands ready to be a warrior, but is also very nurturing. Um, she has no, um, she doesn't have to explain any of her desires. It's kind of this, this archetype. And so I'll be very honest the show Vikings came out <laughs> a couple of years ago on the History Channel here in the States. And I wasn't watching it at first. I kind of rolled my eyes at it because I was just like, whatever. And then I watched it. And I was like, oh, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's wildly historically accurate. Um, but there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. But it really woke up people's interest in Vikings. And so I started noticing all these women talking about Vikings. And <laughs> they were getting a lot of the information wrong. Um, so it seemed like I, I just kind of did it on a whim. I put it out there. So I said, let's do a Viking woman workshop. And it would be like what I do with kids, except the adult woman version of that. So it'd be a lot more mysticism involved in it. There would be a lot more um, talk about sensuality. There'd be a lot more talk about caring for your family and looking at um, goddesses from Norse mythology. And then cool stuff like jewelry making and getting accurate information. Um, so that's really what, where that was born, and then it really took off, and people are way into it, and it's fun. And what we do now is we use it as a lens. So it's not just history and culture, but there is that aspect, because I want people to get accurate information. But I also then have added this coaching lens. So we're using it as a tool for personal discovery, but also then to stand into the aspects of what a, being a Viking woman means um, to you, then integrate that into your life. Mm. It is, it's been a trip. I, I did not expect people to be this into it. It's been really fun. Well, and I, I love that because it's, there is, I think, for many people in the States who might have a Scandinavian background in their family, they, 
we've lost a lot of the connection to that family history and, and what it actually means to be from that part of the world. And so whether or not you have Scandinavian descent in your family, it's still a, a strong culture and a, a, a way to really look at ourselves and and have that sense of mm-hmm. embodying those values and that archetype. Right. And I mean, looking at Viking culture in general, and particularly compared to the rest of the world at that time, it's very primitive, but it's also wildly sophisticated. Um, with the exception of um, slaves, which is a, a, not a small thing, but the Vikings could actually definitely be, in, in terms of the rest of the world at the time, would be called feminists. And women had a really high standing. And um, they're very sophisticated ways of social justice. Um, it's amazing, and but but yet still primitive. And I think we really long for some of that primitive aspect, that connection to land and connection to place and connection to spirit, but then also want to be able to use our intellect in that in a way. And it's, and it's a really cool way of bringing that all together. Mm-hmm. I love that. I'm curious the best advice you've ever received. Received so much good advice. You know, I'm not exactly sure what the best advice I've ever received, but I can tell you that when I'm not sure what's going on or what to do, I um, think of my dad and what he would tell me. And he is, my, my parents are both probably the reason why I do Healthy Boundaries for Kind People. They get this really, really well in really different ways. Um, but my dad has had a lot of, he, he's a survivor. That's been his theme this lifetime is to survive. And I've learned from him the ways to do that and um, how you go about treating yourself with dignity and respect. So I don't know if I have a particular answer, but there definitely are themes of dignity and respect. And, and this is just what's popping, popping into my head right now to actually give you an answer is Shakespeare actually, to thine own self be true. And I think when we get that part right, other things line up. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you might share some of your writing with us. Sure. So this is something um, I wrote with one of my nephews in mind in particular, but also myself and a lot of my clients. And, the, and these tend to be the folks who are really attracted to the um, healthy boundaries for kind people. And it's called a love note to the hypersensitive and takers of it too personally. And that is supposed to be a little bit um, tongue in cheek when I say that, the hypersensitive and takers of it too personally. So I wrote, they say you're too sensitive. You take it too personally. You're thin skinned. You need to toughen up. I hear I have no idea how in touch with the world you are, nor could I grasp the depths of your empathy from which I benefit. It's like you can see colors that are naked to my eye. You you carry the awareness of others, of those far away, those, those unseen in your heart on behalf of us all. You are the torchbearer of the forgotten. You bear the weight of others' pain so that they have a lifeline into the rest of humanity. You are a barometer for how we are doing as a species. I can't imagine the space you hold for others to show up and feel cared for and acknowledged even when no one else can see that it's you doing this. 
You can take on my share of pain when my words sting you. You bear witness that, so that we know, so we cannot forget. Your mere presence is equanimity. Your energy is generously used in service of your ability to intuit and sense even the most subtle changes in weather, perspective, mind, or heart. I'm not aware that your sensitivity can cause you physical pain. You are a canary in the coal mine of our culture, indirect by violent movies, news of pain, and mistreatment of fellow humans, animals, and the earth. If I knew the depths of your consideration, I'd be humbled and inspired. I didn't see or have the consideration that you are a gift and could be treasured. Your light is omnipresent. I don't know to pay attention. I don't understand, even though I am the beneficiary of your grace. I say, thank you, friend. Rest and take care. We need you. Hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. I want to talk a little about um, something that you shared a while back that has to do with a lot of what we've talked about. And I think relates to not just women, but women who are writing and telling stories. Um, you shared a video on your site um, on the topic of don't be so hungry you eat the poison. Ah, yes. In it, you talk about how sometimes we are so eager and we crave so deeply certain kinds of relationships that we don't always pay attention to things that are toxic around us. Um, and we might even choose to engage in those toxic relationships for various reasons. But one of the things that I thought was really important about this was that not just through exploring our boundaries and, and figuring out what we value and what we want to have in our lives um, can we make different choices about toxic relationships, but just the 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 fact of acknowledging that hunger can be a huge step toward finding those boundaries. And I'd love to hear a little more about that. Well, first of all, thanks for watching. <laughs> um, yeah, it's so I think ultimately on the when we peel back all the layers, our sense and abilities around boundaries stem, and particularly if we have uh, boundaries that are not very strong or that are easily encroached upon. But boundaries in general all boil down to uh, wanting to be loved, liked, or respected. And so we are so desperate sometimes, and, and this isn't a bad thing, I think it's, it's very much human nature, we're so desperate to have those things, and it might not be you're thinking, oh gosh, I want to be loved by this person sitting next to me on the bus <laughs> or whatever, but that we are willing to take on things that aren't good for us in order to get those needs met. But what we don't realize is if they're a, not a healthy thing, we're not going to get those needs met. But we're so hungry, we're willing to consume the situation to satisfy that hunger. When we take the time to actually really reflect on what it is that we're hungry for. You know, I mean, like, we may be so hungry and consumed by this thinking that we have this need and, and needing to have these things met um, that we can be blind to what it is we're actually hungry for. 
Yes, um, those hunger pains. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there could be a, a, a you know, just to make make it a little bit uh, practical, there can be a plate of um, cookies right there, or there could be this amazing vegetable tray, um, little plastic. But we're just so trying to satisfy that hunger that we're not looking at what might be a better choice uh, for us. It's actually going to be nourishing in the long run. So. We, while we might want um, the, the just to use this analogy, the minerals and the, the vitamins mm-hmm. from the vegetable tray, <laughs> we the cookies are easy and they require um, they it's a faster fix and sometimes those relationships that are not always good for us are quick and easy relationships whether that's literally. Um, um, well, a one night stand with somebody just to get that fix and then you find out later that was really not what you wanted to do um, to wanting to be or really kind of getting suckered into being friends with somebody who's a complete narcissist because they've shown this attention and it's really flattering without seeing what else is going on like why you know this is a lot <laughs> what's going on here um, and we're going for that quick fix sometimes because we're so hungry. And sometimes it's very hard to see too. It's very hard to see past uh, that hunger when we're something so delicious looking is right in front of us. And that's the case with friendships. That's the case with a lot of relationships, the case with our relationship with money, with all sorts of things. Um, that quick fix feels like a long-term thing, but we have to really look at what we're actually hungry for. And I think another part of that that I just thought of as you were talking is also looking at um, there's not just the quick fix to satisfy these hungers, but also there's that idea of not thinking or not knowing that there could be something in the future, whether it's not thinking that we deserve something that's more nourishing or more fulfilling for ourselves, or not even being able to see that far in front of ourselves. Um, I think that's a another huge aspect. And I think that comes back to the work that you do with boundaries is, is not just boundaries for kind people, but, you know, when you, when you first started talking about boundaries, you said when we learn boundaries. And it's important for us to recognize for, for us to recognize and to remember without judgment that not everybody learns boundaries at the same pace or at the same time in their life. And some people make it all the way to adulthood before they learn what boundaries are or that it's okay to have boundaries. And so being compassionate with ourselves and seeing the ways that we are trying to feed these hungers or get these fixes when we may not have all of the information in front of us. Uh, that is very well put. And I think for most of us, we learn boundaries by growing up in our guardians or parents are and kind of what they do. And sometimes they don't have real healthy boundaries themselves or they are the perpetrators of um, bad boundaries and others if they're you know not respecting respectful of their children. So it is something that not everybody learns and it's certainly not taught in school and compassion compassion is huge i mean it's 
it reminds me a lot, and, and this a lot of the work actually came out of, and I have asked her permission to say this, so um, I'll, I will say it, but my sister has, has had a string of several abusive relationships, um, including with a psychopath, one with a narcissist, and I would watch <laughs> and be like, what are you doing? Why can, you know, what is going on? And she is this bright, intelligent woman, and I just, I had to have, I saw what I wanted for her and her healthy boundaries. And I also had to have healthy boundaries for myself so that I could, you know, some distance in some cases so that I could still be helpful to her. So it's definitely, you know, we grew up in the same household, but we had a really different sense of this as well. So that's something she has relearned um, or learned differently and is through lots of compassion herself and I hope she has felt compassion from her family uh, that's something that is completely different for her now so it is a learning process and it's also never done a done deal and I think that's for two reasons our boundaries can change I'm a real believer in that boundaries are like a spine they should be able to support you but they also need to bend and flex mm. I'm curious what are you devouring these days mm. I am devouring time with my son. He will start kindergarten in a year, and I'm increasingly aware of that our time will not be the same. Um, so I'm really devouring time with him. Outside of that, I am I'm always devouring Carl Jung. <laughs> always. That is a constant source of uh, excitement for me. I am devouring the ocean, the very close to the ocean. That is, that's really big. And chocolate. I've been eating a lot of chocolate. Mm. <laughs> chocolate sounds good. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious if you have any creative habits or rituals, particularly about writing, but in general as well. Huh, grave habits or rituals. You know, something that when I say it, it sounds pretty, probably pretty lame or a cop out. Um, but in it, it, but I've just decided it's who I am, and I'm not going to fight it. My ritual is writing at the last minute. Um, sometimes I cannot <laughs> get things flowing up until then. In all my life, I have tried to change this procrastination, but now I'm starting to realize it's more of just. It's not actually procrastination. It's how I write. And then it's kind of like this bloodletting of it all comes out. <laughs> and I'm usually really tired when it uh, happens, but it's really true. There's, um, there's something really beautiful in that in the end. It's a little hard at the time, and I'm asking why I'm doing this. But I actually think that I have reshaped that so that it, I have defined that more as a ritual as opposed to a deficiency. And that's been really helpful. I don't beat myself up for that anymore. I love that. That's so <laughs> huge. No, that's powerful stuff because I think, you know, when we have ourselves deadline, particularly as writers, some of us are just, you know, words flowing all the time. Got it, got it, got it. And other times, I think it really does take that different experience and and not seeing that as a deficiency, but as part of the process is really huge. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I'll, I'll write down a little, if I get ideas, I might write down a couple of notes here and there, and then in the probably cooking somewhere in my brain, um, or I'm thinking about it, but I don't actually usually start the writing until it's very, I get very intimate with deadlines, but I make them. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so it's probably been that marinating that's been going on, but then when it actually comes time to cook the sucker, it's a, it's a fast and furious cook, but a lot has already probably been done in advance to prepare it for that. I love that. I really do. I think I've been talking a lot with people uh, who say, you know, that they get this advice, you know, if you want to be a writer, you have to write every day or you have to, you know, do this or do that. And I think we get so stuck in this thought like, oh, well, to be a good writer, I have to write every day. And and I think I, I'm really not an advocate of that I'm because I think we're always experiencing and encountering words and ideas. So whether they're marinating somewhere in us or we're exploding them onto the page for, you know, three hours right before they're due, I think that process is what's really making you a good writer or not, is whether you're engaging in that process. I think, and I'll go back to the Shakespeare quote, to thine own self be true. Do what works for you. Mm-hmm. And it might take a while to figure out what exactly that is. And through advice, you might get some new lenses on what that is. But ultimately, if it's not something that is natural in, in alignment with you, it's not going to work. And then you're just going to feel like, oh, you know, shit, <laughs> I can't right? ever get this right. But if you if you just say, this is my rhythm, this is my process, um, it's not a deficiency. I, now, with your word, word I'm going to call it a ritual. <laughs> Oh, here's the last minute push. Let's do this. <laughs> I love it. I can the last minute go. Um, <laughs> yeah. So with anything, you got to do what works for you. Absolutely. That's definitely the case. I would love to give you a chance to share some parting wisdom with listeners, some of whom might be really new to your work, some who may be longtime fans just a chance to really bring them into the conversation with us. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to pick up with where I just left off and do what is right for you. And I think particularly when it comes to boundaries, there is no template um, of this is what it looks like. I really invite people to look at boundaries as a garden um, one you want to, you cultivate and plant. And just like any garden that's going to take weeding, it's going to take, um, maybe some crop rotation, but ultimately you get to decide what that garden looks like. And you might really be into one thing and you want, or your bottom line is the perimeter of the garden. Let's say it's respect that. So for people to be able to even come into your garden, they have to meet the qualifications of your bottom line in this case, respect. And then you can have what I call the concentric circles of kindness. So each layer of the garden, if you look, were to look at it as a circle and you are in the middle, each layer has holds value, um, your values or virtues, things that are important to you. And for people to be able to come into your life um, or to into the next layer, they have to be able to meet the um, requirements of that layer of that value. Now, this is where I think my boundary stuff, well, that's already a little different for a lot of people, but I would say this is where it's really different. You can also walk out to meet them at that layer without having to invite them into 
the, the innermost aspect of your life. You can go out there and meet them at the gate. You can go out there and meet them someplace. But the garden has to be designed by you and for what works for you. And letting that, seeing what changes over time. Um, and this is why I love the metaphor of the garden so much. You know, the soil might need something else for a while. That's where I say your boundaries are flexible. They're not um, fixed. Different parts at times of your life, you're going to need different things. So let it be a reflection of you. Let it be a reflection of what you value because that's what actually puts those values out into the world. And that's then the container in which you live. Gosh, I do so love talking with you. It is always such a gift. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love it. And I am so glad that we could sit down and have this conversation. I... It's just been such a blessing. And if folks want to learn more about you and your work, they can find out about Healthy Boundaries for Kind People and all the Viking Woman Workshop and all the other things you offer at randybuckley.com. You are listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in-her-room.com, you'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. Next week on In Her Room, we'll talk with memoirist and renowned dancer Renee Dow. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together.